listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured, episode 182. And in this episode, we are talking to Commonwealth, an organization based in the UK that is trying to change the way we work from the grassroots. Last week, Shui Hui Zhang, a Chinese cook from Brooklyn, was getting ready to go to court to demand about $200,000 in back wages. But what should have been his pursuit of justice against his old employer ended up somehow landing him in immigration jail. Zhang was in the process of suing his former employer from 2008 to 2015, a restaurant called Ichiban, for violations of the Fair Labor Standards Act. And he had been giving his deposition at the Office of the Defense Counsel when he found himself suddenly on the other side of the law. He was taking a lunch break with his lawyer when ICE agents swooped in and detained him. He's currently in detention in Buffalo. It's not too hard to connect the dots here. Zhang's counsel accused his former boss of tipping off ICE to make the lawsuit go away. What's unusual is that ICE actually has a memorandum of understanding with the New York courts to refrain from arresting people on court premises. The fact that Zhang happened to be on lunch break in a city that he does not live in when ICE swooped in on him suggests that Homeland Security is exploiting every possible loophole to circumvent these rules. Rights activists, however, have long warned that ICE's impingement on institutions like courtrooms could lead to a chilling effect and deter migrants from exercising their rights, including taking legal recourse against abusive bosses. Now, counsel for Zhang's former employer denies that the restaurant tipped off ICE, and ICE simply says that it was acting on Zhang's lapsed deportation order from 2003. However, the fact that it took them 16 years and the fact that he happens to be in a court proceeding against his former employer suggests that some other factors may have been involved. Meanwhile, his lawyers are expanding his legal battle. In addition to the claim of labor violations, they are now bringing a claim at the National Labor Relations Board over the alleged retaliation against Sung, and they're of course fighting his deportation order as well. I spoke with John Troy, counsel for Zhang, about the significance of this case and what it says about how ICE is slowly encroaching on our local courts. Where is he now? He was detained in Albany uh, Detention Center, and then he was transferred to Buffalo. Uh, I believe it should be last Friday. How unusual is it that ICE would intervene in a case that um, is obviously moving forward and is reaching a crucial stage. Um, Has this ever happened with any clients that you know of or anyone at this Albany court? Uh, No, no, we don't think so. I believe maybe the the immigration or IC people under Trump's time, they may take aggressive action against undocumented people, especially they have the, you know, the final deportation order. But they always keep uh, refrain from to deal with whoever uh, they have case pending in court or maybe they have a case pending in front of government agency. Mm-hmm. And this time, uh, I don't think the, you know, the deportation officer he knows uh, in detail our kind has an action against the employer and their arrest. Uh, just play some law uh, to help out the employer to retaliate 
are the employee. Right. And to be clear, it, it is illegal for uh, the employer to uh, collude with ICE or any enforcement agency in order to retaliate against um, in order to retaliate against an employee. I mean, shouldn't there be legal sanctions for ICE itself if they're cooperating in that manner? Yeah, I believe so, but the government agency maybe uh, after they have the finding, maybe they are going to encourage the ICE people to release our kind as soon as possible. I see. And and by the way, uh, we can add a co- uh, course of action on our pending lawsuit regarding to the retaliation. That was John Choi, counsel for Shui Huizang, talking about the wage and hour lawsuit that turned into a deportation proceeding. Last episode, I spoke briefly about the Harlan and Wolf shipyard, where workers have been occupying since the end of July. This week, amid news that there are bidders interested in buying the shipyard and keeping it open, the unions have organized another rally for Friday and continue to call for nationalization of the yard. I spoke with Jerry Carroll, member of the Northern Ireland Legislative Assembly, from the party People Before Profit, who has spent a lot of time rallying alongside these workers about the yard, its history, and what it means for the future of Belfast. So, in terms of Hard on the Wolf, I mean, it's a very, very historic and iconic site in Belfast. If you're coming in through um, the city airport, it's one of the first things you see. Even if you're driving into the city, you see the big 300-foot uh, tall yellow cranes uh, called Samson and Goliath. So the uh, the site itself, Hard on the Wolf, the dock site is very, very sort of um, iconic um, and historic in many ways. And sort of historically speaking, it represents the past of Belfast, which was at the centre of sort of the empire, the centre of the British state, at the heart of it. And what came out of the site was uh, the Titanic, famously, and other vessels and other sort of ships, which were sort of historic and famous uh, as well. And essentially what's happening is currently there, um, the Harlan the Wolf site is uh, in its administration. Um, so um, the company... Um, Previously, uh, would have been uh, employing tens of thousands of workers, yeah. and now uh, it's directly employing uh, around 130 uh, workers. Um, so obviously, that's that's a, a long process of deindustrialisation uh, of the city, um, and something which has happened, um, you know, not just in Belfast, but you know, across the world in many places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if the site um, were not to be saved, then you would have more jobs um, uh, going. Um, more people being forced onto the dole queue to sign um, unemployment for unemployment uh, benefits, and obviously, you know, historically, uh, the state, like I say, um, produced you know many ships uh, and other other items. Uh, but now, the kind of the general area is being referred to as the Titanic Quarter, uh, mm-hmm. which sort of represents a shift um, in Ireland and Belfast and elsewhere, where the focus now is on tourism. And the quarter is about, you know, focusing to bring people in to spend uh, money in expensive hotels and expensive museums uh, without offering much to working class people in and around that area itself, but also across the city uh, much more generally. And those workers tend to be on zero-hour contracts, very little rates, uh, whereas uh, Heart on the Wolf, uh, by comparison, has uh, always had a strong um, union, trade union um, membership. For lots of people as well, uh, the state is um, 
iconic and symbolic of uh, sectarianism. So, you know, in terms of Catholics being unable to get jobs, the workforce being predominantly, largely uh, Protestant, it represents also in the 1920s there was pogroms uh, across uh, Belfast mm-hmm. with uh, uh, thousands of Catholics expelled from their homes, hundreds expelled from the shipyards um, as, as well. So there's no doubt for, for lots of people that that is um, part of the history. But also at the same time, you know, not to ignore that or to downplay that, there's also been a history of struggle. Yeah. I mean, most recently, uh, in 1984, there was a um, a walkout of workers after a Catholic worker um, was shot dead uh, by loyalist paramilitaries in, in 1984. Historically, um, you know, people in, in Ireland uh, you know very well, and, and beyond indeed, know very well the name Jim Larkin. Jim Larkin led the Dockers uh, and Carter strike in Belfast in 1907, and the shipyard in, in and around sort of the heart of the Wolf area was at the centre of that strike. Yeah. The city was brought to a standstill. The police um, were involved in a mutiny after uh, being told they had to um, support and escort scab labourers uh, across the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1918, there was um, referred to as a general strike, but um, the engineering strike in Belfast where um, tens of thousands of workers uh, went on strike. Electricity was stopped. The tram didn't didn't run. Uh, so certainly there's a history of sectarianism in and around the state, but there's also a history of, of struggle, uh, of fight back, um, and, and Larkin um, was involved in that. Connolly uh, was involved in, in encouraging workers in the area uh, in the state to, to fight back uh, as well. So I think that's very, very important um, to remember that and not to see the whole set as just being um, about sectarianism. Certainly it did exist um, and it was uh, deep uh, across uh, northern, uh, the northern state and society, but also there was a, there was a very, very important history of, of fight back and struggle. So, with the current situation, it's now owned by a, is it a Norwegian company? Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, and so what, this was a pretty sudden shutdown, right? That the workers were suddenly informed that the company was, was closing the shipyard? Yeah, I think I think it's been quite abrupt for, for people outside the site, but I think the workers had an idea that things were maybe not coming to the administration and certainly coming to uh, a situation where uh, intervention uh, needed to happen to to save the site as they as they see it and save the jobs. Um, and, and essentially, the way it's uh, set at the minute is they're they're arguing for um, some uh, intervention um, to save the site. Um, there's a debate. Some people are calling for uh, government in- intervention and nationalisation and uh, to save the site, um, which is being talked about in relation to um, Ferguson site on the Clyde as well. And in the 80s and 90s, the site was um, was nationalised um, as well. Uh, and other people are just saying that you know they want um, anybody to come in, any mm-hmm. sort of private company, essentially to to give them uh, breathing space and allow the jobs to be to be kept. Um, so there are kind of uh, there's a debate out at the minute about what happens um, to the future of the site. And for our part, we obviously want to support the workers and keep the jobs. Mm-hmm. But we think there's there's an argument uh, to be said for the government to step in to see if the, the jobs, and not just to you know let the factory um, sort of do. I mean, there was a time when um, Harlan and Wolf was central to you know uh, building ships, warships, and being involved in the process to. Uh, build and continue and maintain warships yeah. and some people are saying at the minute that the MOD, the Ministry of Defence, have got a an application for a new fleet of ships. Some yeah. people are using the argument uh, around Harlan the Wolf to say 
those jobs should go to Belfast. But from our part, and people for profit, we think that the site could be used or maximised for green jobs. It could mm-hmm. be a hub for green jobs. Uh, they've produced um, windmill uh, parts uh, for for Scottish Power and other uh, companies and other um, multinationals. Um, so we think there's a, a, an, um, an important imperative and that the government steps in to not only save the jobs, but to redirect the whole site to be a, a centre for, for green jobs, which could obviously, first of all, save the jobs, but also be in the process of rolling back um, climate change. And I think that's the future, really, uh, of the site. Yeah, talk a little bit about the way that this is now playing into the political situation. Um, Boris Johnson has a majority of one in Parliament and is being held up by the DUP, um, the Democratic Unionist Party. Tell, explain to our listeners a little bit about the role that this fight is now playing in the political situation in um, what is still at the moment Great Britain. At a minute, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, <laughs> it is very much at the center of um, of discussion and, and politics uh, in, in Belfast and across the north of Ireland. And, you know, it's been featured heavily on the news in, in the UK. And, I mean, the reason why, I mean, historically, unionism has been in a, see, 100 years ago, would have been in a strong position uh, to pro- probably intervene and sort of see the factory and, um, you know, um, be involved in a, in a sense to, to protect the jobs. Um, maybe 100, maybe 50 years ago, they could have done that. Whereas now, because of a you know, historical crisis within unionism uh, in Ireland, it's unable or unwilling, rather, uh, or maybe both, uh, to do that. So they, there's a lot of anger uh, amongst those workers who, you know, predominantly would be based in um, and be from East Belfast, which is the area uh, that the site uh, is in, which is a, a sort of heavily um, unionist slash Protestant area. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the DUP, which is the party that has um, the MP uh, for that area, it's Gavin Robinson, who's in the DUP. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been getting a lot of... Um, I'm in the party. There's been a lot of anger from workers and the community generally uh, at the fact that the DUP haven't um, really done much to protect these jobs. Um, the DUP are in a very, very strong position um, because, uh, you know, as you said, Boris Johnson, uh, Boris Johnson's government is very, very weak, very, very unstable for, for lots of reasons, but it has a majority of one. So if the nine DUP MPs who currently are in a position of confidence and supply arrangement with the D, with the Tories to basically support uh, support the government through successive budgets. The DUP party uh, turned around and said to Boris Johnson, "We will support your government only on the basis of British government intervention to save these jobs and to redirect them towards um, a green centre, green hub for energy." If they um, threaten that, then I would place Boris Johnson under massive, massive pressure uh, to react. But so far, the DUP haven't. And for us, for socialists in Belfast and others, many people feel that they have put um, their cosy uh, relationship with the, with the Tories, um, the rotten deal that they have with the Tories, they put that ahead of the interests of working-class people in Belfast, uh, and particularly in their own um, area of East Belfast. So I think they're in a position of strength where they can act, um, but um, that's only going to happen with, with pressure, with mass pressure. And there's now um, talk of um, some trade union members of, of the workforce, I believe, possibly standing an election to challenge the, the DEP um, in East and North Belfast. So that's really, uh, that, that's showing you how much, um, you know, people are, are readily concerned about 
protecting the jobs. But it's also showing you how you know the issue of uh, economics um, sort of overlaps with with politics. And I think you know people uh, calling out to the EP for their own action is not only important, but it, it points to the solution that um, um, they can bring these jobs to BC eventually. So, um, when was the last time you were down there with the workers? How are people feeling down there? It's a, it's a case of waiting and seeing for a lot of people. They're, they're, I mean, they, they, the deadlines have been pushed back for the administration administrators. Um, they're meant to go in, it was maybe two weeks ago or ten days ago, and it's been pushed back and pushed back, which is the positive um, for the workers. Um, the last time I was down, um, there was a sense of, I mean, solidarity and, and, and camaraderie because there was you know hundreds of people uh, uh, from the side out on protest there was people from uh, trade unions across um, across the islands uh, out in solidarity with them so there's a there's an element of you know uh, people being uh, waiting to see what what's going to happen but also an element of people feeling that they're up for a fight so I mean there's been a, a good cross emergence or, or cross um, cooperation of, of of campaigns so the workers have been up at them um, Stormont, uh, I say the Northern Ireland Assembly, and they've been protesting, and there was a fantastic um, image um, the week before last, where there was um, Irish language protesters and um, workers from Heart of the Wolf and their trade unions, and normally they wouldn't automatically be seen as sort of close allies in, the, in their respective fights. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, they wouldn't be seen as close allies, but you had a situation where the workers were chanting uh, in Irish and supporting uh, Irish language rights and, and Irish language activists were, were supporting um, the workers in, in their fight. Um, so things in the north of Ireland are always seen as, and we're told, things will never change and things are always going to be static and that you'll always have communal divisions. And not to downplay the, the reality of sectarianism, but you see moments like this uh, when workers are actually uh, organised to fight back for themselves, where not only can they hopefully, potentially, see other jobs, but they can begin to break down some of those barriers that are being placed by, by political parties. And I think there's, there's, there's moments like that, that we're, which are very historic and important uh, in the North, and we can't sort of downplay how, how significant uh, that, that they are. And that was Jerry Carroll from People Before Profit. In addition to waging a war on immigrant children and families at the border, the Trump administration has been steadily dismantling the brittle edifice of social protections that are currently available to immigrants already residing in the country, including those who are here legally. Trump recently delivered one of the most severe blows yet to the already meager safety net that exists for working-class immigrants. The new rule on defining people as potential public charges builds on an extremely bigoted law passed in the late 19th century, and it sets extremely strict standards for assessing whether applicants for a green card or a visa are likely to be self-sufficient once they are awarded legal permanent residency. It makes it easy to deny green cards on the basis that someone seems likely to become a public charge or a burden on social services. It expands the criteria to include programs such as food stamps, Medicaid, and federal housing benefits like Section 8 rent subsidies. And it allows the government to take into consideration applicants' health and financial background. For instance, living in poverty counts against you, but having an income of at least 250% above the poverty level could boost your chances. The consequences of this rule, according to community advocates, could be the deterrence of many working-class immigrants from accessing the benefits that they're totally legally entitled to. For example, New York City has reported a pattern of disenrollment from food stamps among immigrants in recent months, roughly coinciding with Trump's crackdown at the border and the proposal of this new public charge policy. Now 13 states are suing the Trump administration, hoping to block the rule before it's implemented. I spoke with Max Hadler of the New York Immigration Coalition about the long-term implications of this new rule. 
the public charge concept already exists and right. there are select very few benefits, but there are benefits that are already making people more likely to be deemed a public charge. So, right. so we wouldn't want to leave the impression that if we manage to stop this new rule from going into effect, that the concept of public charge would disappear altogether. My impression was that not too many people were deported under that pretext in previous administrations. That is right. Although, I mean, at least as far as the Department of Homeland Security is concerned and, and inadmissibility on public charge grounds, the, the consequence of that would not be measured by deportation per se, but it would be measured by denied green card applications. And I think something that's much harder or really impossible to measure is the degree to which it deters people from applying for benefit for, for, from an immigration benefit. It's not just about people using health benefits or food benefits or housing benefits. It's also the degree to which something like this discourages people from submitting applications for green cards or other immigration benefits. And I think that there is a somewhat intangible effect that this has and that I, I you know, I can't cite specific numbers, but that I think has has likely always had to the extent that people are aware of public charge right. in deterring the application from happening in the first place. So I guess like people would, I, I guess it was sort of like they're forced to make this impossible choice. Like they could either be deterred from seeking um, material sort of cash benefits and economic benefits, or they could be deterred from seeking an immigration benefit um, if they had had, you know, if they were, um, if they knew that they had sought those benefits previously. Right. And, and that that's, a, I think, a completely valid and understandable concern. When I was saying draw the line earlier, I'm, I'm in part referring to, for example, the fact that there are actually very few people just from the perspective of, of Medicaid coverage, for example, because health policy is my specialty area. There are very few people who qualify for Medicaid who are subject to public charge. Almost every status that makes you eligible for federally funded Medicaid is exempt from public charge. Right. Okay. And um, and so that so it's really important. And again, that doesn't mean that that the person just because they are not enrolled in Medicaid would pass the public charge test or not, because the public charge is is really a much broader examination of someone's overall life circumstances. But from the perspective of someone who is enrolled in Medicaid, it's extremely likely that that person has already passed the public charge test and is already a green card holder, or that they may not be subject to public charge because they are a refugee or have asylum or one of the other exempt statuses. That was Max Hadler of the New York Immigration Coalition. I'm so old that I remember the Employee Free Choice Act, which was considered in 2008 to be labor's best chance at major labor law reform before it fell off the agenda of the Obama administration. How far we've come, Bernie Sanders this week unveiled a sweeping labor platform for his presidential campaign that would build on bills he's already introduced in Congress, which we've discussed before on this podcast, and make major changes to labor law, including repealing parts of Taft-Hartley, which we have also discussed many times in this podcast, and introducing sectoral bargaining, something covered in the recent issue of Dissent that Michelle and I co-edited with Mark Levinson. What is a worker's line of defense? It is the right to strike, Sanders said to our former co-host Josh Idelson, in fact. That is the means that you have to tell your employer, hey, we're serious. So in addition to protecting the right to strike, Sanders' proposal would provide unions the ability to organize through a majority sign-up or card check, which was the key feature of the Employee Free Choice Act, enact first contract provisions to ensure that 
unions, once they are established, can actually get to a first contract, requiring certain levels of negotiation from the employer, eliminate right-to-work bills by repealing Section 114B of the Taft-Hartley Act, stop companies from misclassifying employees as independent contractors or denying them overtime by rating them as supervisors, make sure that employees cannot use franchisee or contractor arrangements to avoid responsibility by codifying the joint employer standard, which we have also discussed on this podcast many times, giving federal workers the right to strike, making sure that every public sector union in America can negotiate, giving public sector employees in places where they do not already have them the right to unionize, require companies that merge to honor existing union contracts, deny federal contracts to employers that pay poverty wages, outsource jobs, etc., 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 all that fun stuff, ban permanent replacement of striking workers, protect workers' pensions, stop corporations from forcing workers to amend attend mandatory anti-union meetings, establish federal just cause protections against firing workers arbitrarily, which is, of course, the law in most of the country right now. You can be fired for pretty much anything. And uh, create a sectoral bargaining system with wage boards to set minimum standards across industries. We will link to a piece that we ran on sectoral bargaining in, of course, the last issue of Dissent. And, of course, they would guarantee the right for all workers to unionize, allow secondary boycotts, and include protections for union-negotiated health care plans in the transition to Medicare for All, which is, of course, Bernie's signature proposal. So there's a lot here. I've just skimmed the surface. We will put links at the Descent Magazine website for all of these things so you can take a deeper look yourself, but it is a pretty comprehensive labor law overhaul that, if enacted, would drastically change the situation that workers are currently in in America. So, you know, just just food for thought. When we talk about work, we're really talking about power, the power the boss has over the workforce, the control that different people hold over the conditions of their life. These days, workers, politicians, and a new group of thinkers are considering ways to shift those relations of power by changing the way companies and the rest of the world are owned and controlled. What would it mean to require companies to give a chunk of their ownership stake to the workers who make them run? That's the subject of today's discussion with Matthew Lawrence, who is the director of Commonwealth, a new UK-based think tank working on issues of collective ownership. I'll let him explain it to you. So Commonwealth is a relatively new organization and its goal is to design ownership models for systems change. So to try and go to the root of how so property and property relations, structure and distribution of power, wealth, income, our relationship to nature, social relations, and to think through at various scales how you can democratize ownership and control within the economy to sort of transform it towards you know, egalitarian democratic outcomes. And so we look at sort of systemic areas, so land, digital technologies, company ownership, how do we steward nature in new ways, and the goal is to sort of aggregate up a series of institutional interventions around ownership and control that can sort of common wealth and that can sort of make sure that the wealth we create in common is shared and democratized. So everything is on fire, literally the Amazon rainforest is on fire right now, um, and Brexit crisis and all these things are happening. Why is it important now to talk about ownership models, who owns the means yeah. of production, who owns the commons, who owns public space, who owns the forest that's on fire. Well, exactly. I mean, sort of Amazon exactly is a like, horrifying but good example. You know, yeah. Capitalism organizes our encounter with nature via property relations, you know, you know, underpinned by force and sort of law, etc. But if we want to move away from an extractive model, both extracted from nature but also from labor, 
we need to reshape that and so we need to steward nature in new ways not necessarily owning it but certainly not in a sort of private property way but like new ways of stewarding the amazon so that it is a common resource managed for the sort of good of you know, both human and non-human life you know if you look at trump you know the extractive nature of financialized capitalism um, and the sort of deep inequalities that so that hydraulically generates you can't break that unless you go to the source of you know the ownership of financial institutions this sort of control over investment who has control of wealth and so it's really about saying actually given the scale of crises ameliorative measures sort of tinkering after the fact interventions they're not going to get you anywhere and so what you need is deep structural interventions that go to the sort of root of how our economy is organized and operates and who owns what shapes how it operates and in whose interest so the attempt is to be much more systemic and at scale and to really sort of insert democracy into sort of the fundamental organizing principles of our economy so talk a little bit about the history of these sort of shifts in how things are owned, how work is structured, but also how, you know, the global economy, and why you think we're aiming towards another sort of radical shift in, in ownership models. At least in the post-war, and sort of the UK, but the US, similar experience, I guess, you sort of had this increasing dominance of a sort of single model of ownership, so sort of the corporation often publicly traded, in which sort of institutional investors, asset managers, pension funds, whatever it might be, own these corporations on behalf of shareholders, often wealthy individuals. And that model has, you know, there are some sort of things that it sort of does relatively well, but in general, and in aggregate, it's generating huge problems of inequality, of misallocation of resources, of environmental sort of degradation, etc., etc. And so, there's on the one hand, there's this, the rise of the sort of public corporation as the dominant economic unit in the global economy. But then there's also sort of the falling away for sort of ideological and sort of political assault on the notion of, sort of public ownership of assets, whether that's public ownership of companies, you know, privatisation but also you know, land of, of nature, the privatization of sort of, you know, the North Sea oil, et cetera, in the UK. And I think if you look at that shift from, you know, a much more pluralistic set of you know, ownership models towards a monocultural, private, privately dominated economy, I think you can really see why it matters going forwards. So, you know, there have been two big shifts in sort of the paradigm, if you want to sort of describe it as that, of how the political economy of the UK and sort of to a degree the US, but focusing on the UK, and that was first of all the sort of the post-war model, at least in our lifetime, the post-war model, you know, Keynesian, national management, lots of problems with it, but you know, national management, sort of nationalisation, and what underpinned that was the extension of public ownership, whether that was sort of nationalisation of healthcare, whether it was the nationalisation of the combining heights of the economy, of the Bank of England, and that kind of underpinned that model. And then clearly privatisation was kind of the sort of the shock troop, both politically but also institutionally, of neoliberalism and the sort of the shrinking of the sort of space and domain of democratic action in the economy via in part shrinking who has control of assets. And so you know, a third step will require much it's not just, be a, we're not saying it should, we should go from one monocultural world of private power in the economy through private ownership and private corporations to one, you know, centralised state led model ownership. But what we are saying is if we want a sort of systemic shift at the equivalent scale of the shifts in the supposed war and neoliberalism, albeit in different directions towards democracy and inclusion, you will have to see a much more pluralistic range of ownership models displacing and pushing out the extractive models that dominate. So we want to sp talk specifically for a while about worker ownership because mm. we are, after all, a labor podcast. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the first paper that you did on sort of 
shifting to worker ownership of, of major corporations. This policy is kind of called the Inclusive Ownership Fund, um, but yeah, in some way, various ways you could describe it. But at the core of it is this idea that we should share in the wealth we create in common, and to do that, we need to reimagine sort of models of ownership, reimagine sort of the arrangements of property and control within companies, and that doing that episodically doing that on the margins won't shift wealth, power, income, flows of control within the company. And so the idea was an intervention in which you have a locked fund which is controlled by the workforce, democratically controlled, trustees are elected, they sort of vote on the strategic decision-making powers, and companies would be required, above a certain size, would be required to set that up, and then over time issue a percentage of equity into that. And so it acts as a democratic heartbeat within the economy, shifting wealth power and control within companies, away from external intermediaries, you know, black crop voting on behalf of workers, towards the workers themselves. And that fund is locked, so it can't be sold, it can't be liquidated, so it is distributing power over time and between the workers. And it's egalitarian, so it's one person, one vote within the company. And any sort of profits generated from that company, the fund gets to distribute that share, whatever the size of the fund is, as the total share equity, the workforce. And so you're talking, you know, in the US, you're talking a 10% of share, you're talking sort of thousands of dollars for the ordinary worker, would be sort of going from external shareholders, often very wealthy external shareholders, into the pockets of ordinary workers, and in the UK, a little less. And there's a couple of variants of that. The party's got their own version. Bernie Sanders has recently sort of announced a similar one. And we've, sort of, you know, we've been working on other versions. But the core of it is this idea of transforming firm-level ownership to give power and control in the firm and then broadening out ownership more broadly through an array of other institutions, such as social wealth fund, overarching it. So what's the difference between this kind of thing and the kind of existing employee stock ownership plans and, mm. and things of that nature? I'm thinking about, you know, Walmart famously, you know, will give, encourages workers to buy stock in the company. Yeah, so there's a couple of differences. I, mean, I think the first one is that it's collective. So it is not about individualized, you know, if you're wealthy, sort of work at Walmart, you can buy more than the next person or you know, not at all. Um, it is a collective model and that generates collective control rights. So you're always going to have much more power as a sort of, in aggregate as, sort of, as the workers rather than a single worker. And so the, the, sort of, the key difference to sort of share schemes is that actually it generates power, collective power. The second thing is because it's not individualized and it's collective, it's much more egalitarian. So it, you know the distribution can be geared in very egalitarian ways or could be flat. So you can basically either say, right, we get X amount of money as a share of our sort of, of the profits or sort of revenue, whatever it would be, and that can go either you know, five hundred dollars to each worker, or it could be at the bottom eighty percent by income gets all of you know is shared out between them, and the top twenty percent don't get any of the share. So you can kind of vote on that within your workforce, but basically it's a heartbeat towards equality rather than ESOP or individual share ownership schemes in which kind of the wealthiest will typically obviously be able to buy more stock, buy more shares, and so you then have a heartbeat towards sort of inequality. So the second thing is it's collective, it's egalitarian, the third thing is locked, so it's like you know individual shares seems like you know, often put risk on the on the sort of worker. Um, you know, if it's you know, that's their savings, life savings, or whatever, um, that that de-risks it, but it also that like, risk de-stresses de the pressure to you know sell out, to financialize. So it's sort of you know it's a model of collective stewardship, and it's a new form of social property in that sense. So it's quite a different 
conception of the company as sort of a commons, as a sort of shared common resource that labour as a constituent development and driver of the firm should be you know, permanently empowered to shape and sort of steward uh, the company. So I think those are some differences. And then I think, you know, certainly the ESOP model in particular, you know, there, there are some sort of benefits of it and it's sort of better than nothing quite often, although it depends on the company type, but not the sort of governance model and strategic sort of decision-making powers on ESOPs, still an optically sort of pro-worker. So it's often management, we in control of the board, they won't be elected, whereas the fund model is very much sort of the aggregate workforce, so employees, but also sort of contracted workers would vote to the board, they'd vote on the distribution, vote on how that board would then vote within sort of shareholder meetings. So it's a sort of much more democratic, egalitarian, sort of permanent intervention to reshape how companies operate and in whose interest. So how do you envision this would affect sort of the, the working life of the workers who are now involved in the running of their company? So firstly, as it scaled, yeah. you know, it would put more money in their pockets. Right. So they would share more in the wealth that they create. So in a very material sense, it would rebalance income um, towards all the workers. The second thing is it would add a new avenue of strategic power. So it very much is a complement to the extension of collective bargaining and sort of organised labour. But you know, collective bargaining is around sort of distribution of the surplus, whereas vote if you have the funds, you actually have worker influence on the strategic direction of the company. So you're voting in this sort of AGM, you're voting, you know, you're putting pressure on the board directly. So I think it would be workers would have a sort of you know this is not the only means, and it's not sort of the perfect instantiation of workplace democracy, but it is another layering up of democratic rights in the firm. Workers will be able to sort of vote, participate on how the fund is elected, its strategies, and then how the, that fund acts on their behalf in terms of strategic decision making at sort of you know, this corporate level. So I think those are two things: you'd you know, be wealthier, and also you'd have more income, and you'd have more power as a sort of community of workers within the firm. And then, I mean, obviously, in some ways, each company could kind of you know, then design many work councils, whatever it would be, to sort of who could then feed up and aggregate in a form. But I think you want to sort of you know, be relatively flexible in allowing each sort of workforce in some ways to articulate the institutional sort of arrangements, how this would flow and how you could best aggregate collective sort of power within the workforce. So you've had the Labour Party express a version of this, put this into the platform. Um, Bernie Sanders put forward a version of this. Um, what kind of interest have you had from like trade unions, worker organizations in this? Yes, I mean, one one of the most interesting innovative trade unions in the UK is uh, the Communications Workers Union, uh, CWU. And they've backed a whole range of really interesting things. You know, they recently endorsed the Green New Deal. Um, they've both backed politically, but also have put into practice moves to reduce the working week and four-day week. And they've, they've been a sort of very strong early supporter of the ownership fund model as a complement to and a sort of amplifier of um, organised labour. And I mean, obviously, they, you know, ownership is obviously like a long-running debate on the left around sort of you know ownership and you know should you have a sort of oppositional, it's just management versus organised labour, sort of labour capital, or should you seek to sort of democratise and control capital on behalf of the workforce? And obviously, that's a long-running debate. But in general, you know, it's been, I think on both sides of the Atlantic, you know, there's been engagement obviously with the union movement um, and sort of institutions of organised labour who are supportive of this idea of more sort of collective 
ownership of capital by workers. So yeah, so CW would be a very good example. They've been supporting it at labour conferences, etc. I think they passed a motion potentially last year on it. So when we're talking about, since I'm currently thinking a lot about the Amazon being on fire, when we're talking about these kinds of ownership models um, changing the sort of like the short-termism of mm. capitalism, right? Of the way that we've seen things speed up and only work in the name of, of very short-term profits. Is there something built into this model that like helps sort of change that level of like that kind of thinking about what production is for? What you'd like to see, and there's sort of American academics like Mick McCarthy and others who've done, or Mike McCarthy, Mick McCarthy's a British football manager. But anyway, um, Mike McCarthy and others in the US have written purchasing on this. But I think you know, you'd almost like to see these type of institutions of ownership not just be used to you know, put more money in the pockets of people, but actually to then reshape the purpose of production and to make it socially orientated and not towards simply the uh, capital accumulation and maximization of profit and then all the sort of things that then flow from that, not least you know, the Amazon being on fire. And so, yeah, you want to see these institutions being interventions that do, in the short term, have a political valence, you know, sort of more money in your pocket, more power, but also aggregating up quite quickly to being institutions that can fundamentally reshift the, the purpose of production, reshape the nature of the company, and sort of transform it towards something that sort of produces value and equity rather than, you know, just simply pursues the interests of external shareholders. And, you know, once you, if you can get that symmetry more, closely, then you don't, ha you don't need to produce loads of surplus for external people. You can sort of produce enough yourself and, you know, begin to sort of vote for, you know, you can imagine the funds saying, hey, as sort of owners, we don't want to work five and a half days a week. We want to actually sort of radically reduce working time because we don't want to sort of chase profit just for the sake of it. We sort of, you sort of can, you sort of can sever the sort of structural drive towards endless expansion, commodification, accumulation. Percent of the uh, ownership going to be enough to do that? So, I mean, I think that's, that's a political... So, I think there's two things. I think the 10% thing would make them the largest... So, just think BlackRock. Yeah. A lot of sort of power in voting, a lot of power in sort of shifting companies. BlackRock is often the, very, the largest single shareholder in most yeah. listed companies. There's other BlackRock, Vanguard, etc., yeah. etc. And they typically, their holdings are like no more than 5%. Maybe sometimes more, sometimes less, but like not much. So, if you had 10%, yeah, it's not a lot, but actually, in the scheme of things... You dwarf in public companies at least. Yeah. Private companies are different, but you dwarf any other sort of you know, institutional intermediary yeah. owner, yeah. and then you can use that to sort of push on the interest of corporate government things. Um, but like clearly, yes, ten percent is ten percent. Yeah. So yeah, you'd want to. I think a, a point of political contestation would be to push towards socialisation capital beyond simply ten percent. Um, but I think. You know, working out strategically how you do that, how you mobilize forces, yeah. I think we obviously, you know, that would be a sort of a goal there that you want to sort of move towards. Yeah. So you're doing this work sort of internationally, talking to people in the US and the UK, I'm thinking about specifically because we're in the era of the global corporation. And so, yes, how does this model sort of help tackle the, these global things that it's mm. very hard to pin down to like, you know, like how would you nationalize Amazon? Yeah, I mean, I guess... You know, these questions kind of flow from, I guess, like, you know, Quinn Svodin's book around mm -hmm. globalism, you know, it was so brilliant as sort of 
articulating the flight from the national as a way to escape sort of democratic constraint. And the multinational corporation headquartered in like Bermuda or Ireland, right. where booking its profits in, is a good example of that. That said, I don't think we're sort of you know, powers to face. A, you can sort of you know you can apply versions of this yeah. to multinationals operating in you know, Tokyo, uh, Toyota operating in. Um, the US, you could say, okay, well, we can't necessarily take 10% ownership, we can take a proxy of that, so 10% of profits generated in the US has to say the US workers, and they get you know, the subsidiary in the US, there's voting rights for their support decision making in the US, or at least some sort of flow back to the board in, in Tokyo. Yeah. Um, I think, so there's, you can, you, we have an, in the paper coming out, so set out how you can design it so that multinationals would still be sort of captured by models like this. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of the sort of the offshoring, the tax evasion, etc., etc., you know, having a stake, you'd sort of like to think workers would not be voting for, you know, middle and low income workers, you'd like to be think, would not be voting for their sort of corporation with their own to be like booking all their profits offshore and sort of, you know, tax arbitrage, labour arbitrage, pushing down on labour, pushing down on the environment, such that, well, you know, that benefits the tops of 1% or whatever it might be today, but that doesn't benefit. You know, the rest of us, and so like you know, if you can reshift ownership control, you can then reshift decision making at least those outcomes. But that said, you know, I think it's you know important to stress that like whatever there's no real like silver bullet. So tackling some of this like you know tax evasion, avoidance, offshoring will require sort of a, a quite a wide suite of policy interventions yeah. to tackle to the reshore capital to sort of bring it back within the sphere of sort of domestic politics and sort of democratic power. So let's talk about a little bit about some of these other forms of democratic ownership you're investigating. Um, particularly, I want to talk about the, the sort of public common partnership proposal, which yeah. I think is really interesting. Can you explain a little bit about what that is and what that would... So I'm not quite sure if it's the same in the US, but certainly in the UK we've had a sort of long history of, uh, sort of PFIs, um, so public uh, private finance initiatives, and then sort of PPPsing, so sort of public-private partnerships, mm-hmm, yeah. in yep. which sort of the delivery of hospitals, or whatever it might be, is kind of yeah. undertaken rather by the public realm. It's undertaken, you know, by a sort of private mm-hmm. agent that delivers it, and then charges like a extortion extractive rate back to the public realm for the cost of that delivery. And that model has been shown, you know, by neutral observers at National Order Office. You know, we did a review of PFIs the other day, the other year, and sort of you know the scale of excess cost of extraction of the sort of weakening of democratic sort of control it's just sort of the model's you know a failure and so the public common partnership is this idea that instead of saying well you know to deliver to sort of care for spaces places to build assets in the public realm we need to rely on extractive sort of financialized delivery models in the private sector why don't we sort of create a commons so whether that's you know communities, whether that's workers, whether that's you know, community groups, partnering with the public to deliver things, whether that's management of land, whether that's sort of the preservation of community spaces like the Save Latin Village campaign in Harrogate in North London, sort of, mm-hmm. uh, through to things like community energy companies. And so this, this idea is actually trying to create a sort of democratic association in the management of common resources between you know, public institutions and then commoners rather than public institutions and private extractive actors. And so it's trying to sort of fundamentally reshape and expand this space for democratic association and management of shared resources. 
Let's talk about the Green New Deal as a sort of global now understanding of, of um, pol a set of policies that would transition away from um, carbon-intensive energy and also provide sort of jobs and things for people who would otherwise be left behind. This is obviously of very big interest to workers, but one of the challenges is that you still have a lot of unions that will favor things like a new runway at Heathrow or whatever because it mm. is the, still the short-term jobs. Mm. And so with some of the policies and things that you're working on around the Green New Deal, um, what, are, what are, I guess, specifically thoughts on that front to sort of bring working people along to these things mm. and create, if not just sort of jobs for jobs' sake, like actual opportunities for, for your average working person? Yeah, so I think core to the Green New Deal must be new ways of, of working um, and indeed not working. Yes. And so I think there's a couple of things. We're big fans of not working. Huh? Exactly. Um, and so I think that's partly it's got to be, and it's where like ownership or yeah. stewardship you know, comes in, partly it's got to be like a radical extension of sort of and decommodification of social life, you know, whether that's care, transport, food systems, etc. And that kind of de-stresses the need to go out and sell your labour and de-stresses the need like this expanding sort of circle of production and then uh, degradation. So I think there's probably the sort of de-stressing element and we need to have constructive transformation that de-stresses some of the drivers of you know, the need to work. Second thing is, I think there needs to be, you know, key part of, you know, the Green Deal, it's a policy long term, it's kind of like, almost like a all-encompassing industrial strategy, although industrial is obviously, but like a, a right. deliberate attempt to intervene and reshape sort of economic activity and its impacts. And so clearly part of that has to be reimagining work, so reimagining from, you know, production for accumulation towards ecological production and reproduction, social reproduction, you know, care, both sort of in, in its wider sense, centering new forms of work. And so I think there is, and that are generative forms of work. And I think that then, you know, part of the office saying, well, look, you know, you might not be working as a repairman on, you know, the third runway at Heathrow yes. in a Green Deal, but what you might be working on is, at, you know, sustaining and expanding you know, wetlands or peatlands or reforestation that rewilds and sort of sucks carbon out of the air. You might be sort of tending to, you know, new forms of, you know, publicly owned transport. You might be sort of, you know, repairing wind farm, whatever it might be. So, you, you know, the scale of investment will generate, you know, good, jo good jobs. Um, but there would be just different forms of work. So I think there's de-stressing, there's a reshaping. Um, you know, there's a wider thing of like structurally, you know, it is an extension of public and democratic forms of economic activity. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, the Green New Deal, to mobilise the scale of investment required, will require an extension of public banking, of, you know, the role of the central bank supporting public investment through, you know, the Treasury. Um, so I think that directive power means that actually there is quite a lot of capacity to shape and expand generative forms of work and sort of say to like labour unions, look, we recognise your concerns, but there's potential here that needs to be shaped by labour to generate new ways of working in the future that are frankly much better than exist today. Yeah, I like I like the, the phrase generative forms of work. I think that's good because I kind of been chewing on this idea for a while. Is like, should all labour be you know socially reproductive labour? Should that be the mm. concept that we're fiddling with? And of course, I'm chewing on this for my book. Yeah. 
um, in various ways to make these arguments. But yeah, I like that. It's like a possible mm. sort of not quite that, but or not quite everything is social reproduction, yeah. but still. Um, yeah, when it's such like community wealth building mm. stuff, it, it, over here gets talked about as the Preston model. Yeah. In the U.S., we talk about the Cleveland model, um, and yeah, but these this way in which we think about um, related to multinational questions and everything else, I guess the way we think about building and generating wealth locally yeah. as both a, a strategy for just rebuilding these you know rust belt cities which are a problem both here and in the u.s and also for dealing with climate crisis because some things are going to have to come back down to local level yeah i think what community wealth building is is an attempt to say actually the economy is deeply planned but Mm -hmm. make that conscious right and make it you know make it so that capital is much more rooted in place much more generative um you know there's a much clearer yeah. articulation of how economic strategy at local level can serve mm-hmm. local needs rather than to the a sort of sense of like well there's only one metric it's lowest cost commission out you know you procure from you know lowest cost denominator that whatever the sort of social environmental economics sort of, sort yeah. of costs that add up quite quickly to you know post-industrial towns and cities and so there's a sort of sense so consciously we need to redesign sort of architecture the lattice work of institutions of spending of you know the types of business model we favor yeah. and then i think you know once you sort of begin to consciously when you recognize and then consciously plan for a more generative economy then obviously you sort of recognize that actually when we've got to sort of consciously plan the transition that's rapid that's just that's you know inclusive and so there's a real like overlap between community wealth building it's a green community wealth building in a way um not least because of that relocalization and so so the shrinking of supply chains but also because of you know, the overlap between you know, the Green New Deal being a sort of conscious restructuring and rapid restructuring economy towards different ends different means different purposes but also our community wealth building is about is about that in some ways in miniature mm-hmm. and so I think there's, there's really interesting overlaps I think there are also some quite interesting tensions in some ways between sort of global justice inequalities Within sort of global capitalism, right. and then sort of its particular footprints in localities and places, right. and those I think that both those tensions can be overdone. But I think that, you know, nonetheless, I think there are things to try and think through. How can we make sure that you know ensuring the people of Cleveland share the wealth they create in common does not end up you know worse than Shenzhen being displaced? I think that's a sort of overdone thing. But I think trying to sort of have a real sort of sense of anchoring the local in a sort of global and international sort of Solidarity and sort of economic justice perspective um, is is a sort of key challenge, and I think you know, that will feed into some sort of Green New Deal community wealth building debates that are sort of sort of going on. But I think it's a really interesting development. Here. Anything else? Or have I asked you everything? I think it's quite a noticeable trend. You know, the science announcement, um, and obviously. McDonald in particular is really stressed on agenda, but it's interesting to see the return of ownership to the centre of politics, mm-hmm. um, and I guess how that can be connected up and embedded within labour movements and labour struggles as a sort of fulcrum for transitions to radically different economic futures and radical distributions of power and wealth. I think is really an exciting opening, and I guess sort of the challenge for sort of those working sort of designing these institutions is to embed and connect up with labour and labour struggles and 
it feels like it's a sort of strategic opening for Labour and, and Labour with small L, but also Labour with big L, to offer sort of transformational institutions around ownership, around control, that actually you can also offer like quite material benefits quite quick to ordinary people. And so you can see it as a prefiguring of of the type of economics, the type of new economy that sort of your podcast is exploring. And that was Matt Lawrence of Commonwealth. You're listening to Belaboured, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. And my pick for ARG is Abortion is Our Right to Strike by Jenny Brown in Jacobin Magazine. With all the political rancor over abortion rights and reproductive health care in Washington, you might be wishing that lawmakers would spend a little less time wallowing in the trenches of the culture wars and more time debating substantive issues like economic policy or corporate regulation or the environment. But Jenny Brown takes a different angle on abortion. She talks about it as a labor issue. Indeed, they don't call it labor for nothing. The entire reason the working class exists, after all, is that it continues to reproduce itself. And our bodies, minds, and spirits are, generation after generation, practically from birth, conscripted to serve industry. And the ruling elite leverage this power to sustain life through the wealth that it meets out in wages and public benefits. The government then sets the legal parameters of birth by restricting abortion and providing certain protections and benefits to pregnant women and new parents on a highly conditional basis. We don't just give birth, we raise workers. It's true that social and cultural movements, particularly religions, also create the standards and behavioral norms that dictate childbirth and parenting, but the measures by which women are judged, how many kids to have, whether to get married, whether to stop working or to seek childcare, are part of a political economy of reproduction. And when we refrain from reproduction for whatever reason, we are seen as pathologically unproductive, a burden on society, or an affront to social values. So when you say there's a culture war going on over abortion, it is actually a war for the control of the ultimate means of production, the one that humanity is endowed with from birth. That is, birth is a renewable resource that is neither derived from capital nor controlled by it completely, despite attempts by politicians and employers to shape our reproductive fates. These conversations are not simply issues of family values. They are about structuring the welfare system to sustain families just enough to be industrious and obedient workers, but not necessarily enough to be empowered citizens. Describing abortion as a key, quote, economic battlefront, Brown notes that the decision not to have children is a far greater crisis for the ruling class than unplanned pregnancy, pregnancy out of wedlock, or any of the other deviant forms of childbearing that Republicans typically condemn. Birth rates are actually falling nationwide, as is the case in many affluent countries. And that means capital is in danger. Brown writes, quote, The fact that fewer people are willing to have children isn't surprising, given the undermining of everything that makes working class life viable. But it does put the establishment in a bind. If they want to increase the birth rate voluntarily, they will have to put resources into universal child care, health care, paid parental leave, and livable wages and working hours. Naturally, they'd prefer to take away reproductive liberties because it's a much cheaper way to boost the birth rate. But today, the falling birth rate may in part be a sign that the old system of coerced reproduction is no longer sustainable. As parents struggle to keep their heads above water, Brown writes, quote, Right now, women and all parents are blaming themselves when they can't make it work. This is why it's important to expose the anti-abortion right as the enforcement arm of an economic system that pushes the costs and burdens of child-rearing onto families and relies on women's unpaid labor, unquote. 
The state and capital's desire to control reproduction on a societal level covers almost every social policy. Lower fertility rates alarm politicians because they can make it harder to support the aging generation and puts pressure on welfare systems. The regulation of immigration is another parallel process that similarly seeks to control the churn of the workforce and the quality and quantity of labor that society can exploit. In a way, immigration is sort of a shortcut, since governments don't need to invest in immigrant workers in the same way. They come as adults, they don't need to be parented or raised or schooled from childhood. The problem gets complicated, though, when immigrants inconveniently decide to have real lives and families here. And so undocumented women are so often excluded from federal family planning services and are often demonized for daring to have children, who are cavalierly referred to as anchor babies. So what to do about falling fertility rates? Perhaps celebrate them? Brown posits the so-called birth strike as a tactic for challenging neoliberalism's assault on the values of community, labor solidarity, and basic humanity. But this is not a traditional call to action. Rather than pull a modern-day Lysistrata, Brown argues for reconceptualizing a phenomenon that is already unfolding before our eyes, subtly, even if we have not yet named it. Call it an informal strike, a de facto work stoppage, or just reproductive freedom. When women can choose whether and when to have a child, that is reclaiming political power, and taking control of a job that, while we didn't ask for it, is unlike any other. Modern technology hasn't found a way to replace women's reproductive function, and even if it could, childbearing is not an occupation that can be easily automated. Childbearing, after all, is messy business, and there's no algorithm for motherhood. The power of reproductive choice places women at a unique pivot point in the social structure, disrupting the engines of technology, economic growth, and religious dogma. Perhaps it's time we fully occupy that space and put our bodies and those of the next generation on the line. We spoke last episode about ice raids on meatpacking plants in Mississippi and the ways that bosses have used such ice raids in the past to control their workers and keep them compliant. This week, Eric Schlosser, author of Fast Food Nation, has a piece at The Atlantic looking into the issue further, titled, Why It's Immigrants Who Pack Your Meat. Schlosser writes, quote, The immigration raid last week at seven poultry plants in rural Mississippi was a perfect symbol of the Trump administration's racism, lies, hypocrisy, and contempt for the poor. It was also a case study in how an industry with a long history of defying the law has managed to shift the blame and punishment onto workers. The meatpacking industry, Schlosser explains, deliberately recruited migrant workers to break unionized workforces of old, drive down wages, and speed up the pace of work. The conclusion, he writes, is that, quote, what Trump has described as an immigrant invasion was actually a corporate recruitment drive for poor, vulnerable, undocumented, and often desperate workers, end quote. Those workers face injury rates much higher than the average, but are loath to complain because, of course, their complaints could lead to ice coming down on them. Sexual harassment is also rampant, and once again, workers worry that complaints can lead to just the kinds of immigration rates that happened two weeks ago. And the Trump administration's rules have made conditions worse in the industry, from exempting factory farms from pollution regulations to allowing a speed-up of the production line, which increases the possibility of injuries to the workers. Schlosser concludes, writing, Quote, over the years, I've spent time with countless farm workers and meatpacking workers who entered the United States without proper documentation. Almost all of them were hardworking and deeply religious. They had taken enormous risks and suffered great hardships on behalf of their families. Today, workers like them are the bedrock of our food system, and they are now being scapegoated, hunted down, and terrorized at the direction of a president who inherited about $400 million from his father, watches television all day, and employs undocumented immigrants himself at his golf resorts. 
the day after the immigration raid of Mississippi, the United Nations issued a report suggesting that everyone should eat less meat to reduce the impact of climate change. That's a good recommendation. An even better one would be, don't buy anything produced by America's large industrial meatpacking companies. Every dollar that you give them now is blood money, literally and figuratively." End quote. That is all we have time for this week. Thank you, as always, to Descent for hosting us and to Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good. Thank you to all of you for listening, for tweeting about the podcast, sharing it with your friends, writing us reviews on iTunes or wherever you listen, and most especially thank you to our monthly sustaining donors who keep us going with your money. You can become a sustaining member at descentmagazine.org slash belabored membership. Just $5 a month gets you an excellent belabored tote bag. We also have some fabulous new Descent t-shirts if you sign up to be a Solidarity subscriber to the magazine, which you can find out more about at descentmagazine.org slash solidarity. You can also always write to us if you are an occupying shipyard worker or a migrant facing ice crackdowns, if you have thoughts about the Green New Deal or labor law reform, or you want to own your own workplace, or if you just have something else to share. Belabored at DescentMagazine.org or tweet at us at hashtag Belabored. Thanks, Solidarity, and we'll be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit DescentMagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored.